Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give, and there's no regular commitment. Just click the link in the show description to support now. Spy Talk, a podcast at the intersection of intelligence, foreign policy, national security, and military operations with Jeff Stein and Gene Meserve. Hello, I'm Jeff Stein. And I'm Jean Meserve. Welcome to another episode of Spy Talk. Afghanistan, the images, the emotions are raw and difficult. And much of the world is wondering how in the world the U.S. withdrawal and the departure of Americans and Afghan friends and allies could have been so poorly executed. President Biden acknowledged a failure to prepare. This did unfold more quickly than we had anticipated. So what's happened? Afghanistan political leaders gave up and fled the country. The Afghan military collapsed sometime without trying to fight. If anything, the developments of the past week reinforced that ending U.S. military involvement in Afghanistan now was the right decision. In this episode of Spy Talk, we'll explore some of the history and some of the implications of our Afghanistan exit. I'm going to be talking today with Toby Harnden, who has a very timely new book out about the first CIA team to enter Afghanistan way back in October 2001. Like many others, he's distressed at how the Afghan military and police forces folded like a sandcastle. Echoes of, you know, what happened this weekend. The Afghan Garfuls didn't do their job, you know. When, they didn't live uh, up to their expectations. No, on paper, they looked like an effective guard force. But when things started going south, they, they just, some of them were killed, but most of them ran. Jeff's interview with Toby Harden's coming up. But first, as Jeff mentioned, the U.S. went into Afghanistan almost 20 years ago after the 9-11 attacks. Initially, it was a counterterrorism mission kill Osama bin Laden, and quash al-Qaeda. But now the Taliban control the country and hundreds of jihadis have been released from prison. So I asked one of the top counterterrorism scholars in the world, Bruce Hoffman of Georgetown University's Walsh School of Foreign Service, about what it means for the global fight against terrorism. It's absolutely catastrophic. There's no way to put a good face on it. In Bin Laden's last publicly released videotape in October 2004, he predicted precisely this outcome. He boasted how the faith and power of the Mujahideen in the 1980s had worn down the morale and the resolve, had sent their sons back in body bags, had bankrupted this former Soviet Union's treasury. And he vowed he would do the same to the United States and drive the United States from the world scene. And whether we want to admit it or not, his narrative will now be touted, trumpeted, proclaimed as having been enormously prescient, if not prophetic. And I think, unfortunately, will inspire, motivate, and ultimately animate, unfortunately, more terrorism than we've seen. Specifically in Afghanistan, what do you expect to happen? A reconstitution of al-Qaeda, for instance? In my view, it's already reconstituted. You just have to look at successive reports from the United Nations. 
that have repeatedly stated that the Taliban consulted with, were guided by al-Qaeda, made profound assurances to al-Qaeda every step of the way in the negotiations. So I don't see any reason that that will change. And if we want to probe deeply into the reasons for the collapse of the Afghan security forces, yes, certainly all these arguments, the corruption, the ghost soldiers, the private deals that were cut, all that's true. But we have to also acknowledge, firstly, the access to sanctuary and safe haven that Pakistan afforded, which everyone knows who studies insurgency and terrorism, that when adversaries are afforded some opportunity to rest and regroup and have if only tacit state support, it's immeasurably more difficult to defeat them. David Galula, the famed uh, French counterinsurgency uh, military officer, wrote about this extensively in the 1950s in the context of Algeria. And we see, saw what happened in Algeria despite the efforts of, of, of the French. So that was one difficulty. The other one is for the past three decades, Al Qaeda has functioned as a force multiplier for the Taliban, providing it with intelligence, sophisticated logistics, communication support, and operational support. I mean, don't forget, over 20 years ago, Brigade 55 of the Taliban was, in fact, al-Qaeda fighters. And those fighters, yes, of course, there are only a few hundred. That's absolutely right. But, you know, this is exactly the conceit of terrorism, that a man or a handful of men can change the course of history. That's how all terrorist movements embark. And I would argue that that handful of whatever it was in number of al-Qaeda was absolutely pivotal in this outcome in facilitating the rapid Taliban conquest or reconquest of Afghanistan. And how crippled now is U.S. intelligence to get a picture of what is happening with these various terrorist groups? I'd say from the start, any country in the world where the U.S. doesn't have an embassy is crippled or at least suffers mightily in terms of its intelligence gathering just because of the world and the way intelligence works. And of course, this was exactly a problem before 9-11 in Afghanistan and Kabul. So why, why should we think it's going to be any different now? So we won't know what's happening, basically. Well, we'll have much less of a window. And indeed, this is, uh, you know, the DCIA, Nicholas Burns, uh, you know, made exactly this statement that intelligence collection is, is, is inevitably going to suffer as a result of a withdrawal. You mentioned Pakistan and the fact that they gave them safe haven. Do you have any knowledge or indication that Pakistan pr provided other kinds of assistance to the Taliban? Intelligence, for instance. Well, the Taliban and various other non-state actors in the region have long benefited from the support and assistance of Pakistan and particularly of inter-services intelligence, the ISI, its main intelligence arm. Again, all the more optimistic hopes that the Afghan forces would be able to hang on longer, I think that the serial erosion of their capabilities was not just organic, many of the reasons that commentators are focused on. Certainly, whatever support they got, whether it was active or passive, whether it was as a result of policy from Islamabad or was undertaken by individual officers or former officers who have long worked with the Taliban. Of course, the Taliban's headquarters was in Quetta in Pakistan. Obviously, this was another decisive element in the rapid collapse of Afghanistan and the routing of the Afghan security forces. What's it going to mean? For Pakistan? Is it going to allow the Pakistani Taliban 
to recruit more robustly and engage in even more activity, for instance? I'm sure that's something that is definitely possible because, of course, the TTP, Pakistani Taliban, will now have a sanctuary and safe haven across the border in Afghanistan. I think, though, throughout history almost, states throughout the world have nursed the conceit that they can somehow control or influence non-state actors, even when their agendas might uh, differ. And I suspect that's part of why we're not hearing a lot about Pakistani concerns about, uh, about the Taliban's victory because of the repercussions for the TTP. On the other hand, though, I mean, think of really who now are the main actors in that region, Pakistan. China. China and Pakistan have very close relations. China has, is immensely concerned about the security of its investments and its personnel in Pakistan. Uh, just last week or the week before, uh, there was a terrible tragedy where several uh, Chinese workers were killed by in a terrorist attack. China itself is walking a very delicate line given its treatment of its Muslim Uyghur population. But at the same time, the appeal of Chinese investment, the lack of any kind of moral suasion, or attempts to influence policy with respect to women, to civil liberties, to civil rights, which China is not as concerned about or is unconcerned about compared to the United States, probably means that in Pakistan and elsewhere throughout the region, there are those that are hoping that this close relationship between Pakistan and China will be replicated now in Afghanistan. And indeed, in recent weeks, a senior Taliban official was very publicly welcomed um, to China and met with them. So, so it, 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 it's hard to say, but I think your, your point is right, is that there are lots of moving parts here and none of them are terribly in sync with one another. But the bottom line is this has introduced a profound instability into an already unstable and dangerous region. I mean, we just have to think that twice in the 2000s, in 2001 after the attack on the Indian parliament, and then in 2008 after the Mumbai attacks, which were perpetrated by terrorist groups believed to have connections with the Pakistani government, certainly were in Al-Qaeda's universe, almost drove Pakistan and India to the brink of nuclear war. So that's yet another, I think, very profound concern that we're not hearing much about. Is there potential of a refugee crisis that could be destabilizing for Pakistan? There's certainly a danger of a refugee crisis that will flood into Pakistan exactly as it did in the 1980s. And we've seen, unfortunately, uh, this particular uh, scene play out in many different countries over the past decade as refugees of attention, past decade or more indeed, have attempted to flee from the Maw of conflict and sink, seek safety elsewhere, particularly in cross-border areas, which has had an enormous economic impact. And as we've seen across Europe, it's become a a huge political issue. So that may well surface in countries in South Asia. Is the Pakistani government, do you think, under the illusion that it can control the Taliban? Hard to say. Again, historically, I would just repeat myself and say the conceit of all governments is that they can enter into some sort of a relationship with terrorist groups and will always have the upper hand. And then they find that their agendas diverge or their disputes and they can't control them. I would say, though, uh, not being a Pakistan expert, but I would say that given the long historical relationship that has been unbroken between the Taliban and the Pakistani government who's ever been in office, that that relationship will continue and endure and will indeed contribute 
to a conviction that the Taliban can be influenced or somehow controlled. We'll, we'll, we'll have to see. It's potentially an illusion, correct? I mean, this is the Taliban we're talking about. Well, it is an illusion. I mean, the Taliban has their own agenda. And part of that agenda is to dissolve the Duran line, the artificial demarcation that the British imposed on the Indian Raj century and a half ago, and to unite Pashtuns uh, both north and south of the border. So certainly this is going to be very challenging for Pakistan. And of course, you know, nothing succeeds like success in any non-state group that has the momentum with it, at least historically hasn't stopped. It has become more excessive, not being moderated in power. So I think, uh, again, to repeat myself, we're in for an enormous period of instability in South Asia, which is one of them already one of the most volatile regions in the globe. You've mentioned that China is concerned about what the implications could be for them. What about Russia? What about India? Could there be a spillover effect? Well, India, of course, is going to be intensely concerned. And India was very involved in the rebuilding investment in Afghanistan and, of course, saw it as a bulwark pushing back the strategic frontiers of what has always been Pakistan's military strategy is to support non-state actors and thus to to gain strategic depth through regular warfare. So India has to be very concerned about this. Not least, too, we have to remember that the two most recent franchises created by al-Qaeda, al-Qaeda in the Indian subcontinent and al-Qaeda in Kashmir, unlike all the other al-Qaeda franchises, which existed prior to their relationship with al-Qaeda and then swore the oath of allegiance to either bin Laden or al-Zawahiri, these two were created specifically by al-Qaeda. In the case of AQIS, it always had a focus on recruiting Pakistanis, but others from South Asia. Ash Sahab, al-Qaeda's perennially active propaganda arm, really began to increase its publications and communications in Urdu, for example. Pakistanis, particularly those with engineering or scientific degrees, which again become another enormous force multiplier for a terrorist organization, were deliberately recruited. Taking advantage, perhaps, of the upswing in Hindu nationalism and of nationalist or populist parties in India provides at least an ideological foundation or justification to, for al-Qaeda and others to ramp up their efforts against India. So I'm sure the Indians must be very worried. As for the Russians, I mean, this is great news. It's another setback for the United States. Speaking of the United States, do you think that this ups the risk of something happening on U.S. soil that's inspired by al-Qaeda or the Taliban or ISIS? Of course, there's absolutely no doubt. I mean, image of the United States where the president just 38 days ago proclaimed that Afghanistan and Kabul would not become another South Vietnam and Saigon. And this has unfortunately fallen by the wayside can only embolden all of our opponents who see a weakened, certainly a divided, very polarized United States and will seek to take advantage of it. I mean, the ideology of confronting the West, for example, we for 20 years have denied that this is a clash of civilizations while our enemies have constantly repeated that's exactly what it is. So now where they see the United States on its back foot, if not in fact, but at least because of some very poor policy choices in recent years. I think, can only encourage and inspire terrorist attacks and a fear that there will not be any kind of meaningful retribution. We're not going back to Afghanistan. There may be 6,000 troops there to secure the airport, but 
our adversaries know that for years there has not been support for these prolonged overseas expeditionary forces. Given what we are seeing at the airport and how many of uh, the Afghanis who worked with us are apparently going to be left behind, is the U.S. going to find it extraordinarily difficult going forward to find allies in the fight against terrorism? Well, to find allies across the board. I mean, I think all of our allies must be questioning. And Afghanistan isn't the first withdrawal. The withdrawal of support for the Kurds in Syria, for example, withdrawal from, from Libya. The withdrawal from, from Iraq. Admittedly, that was more complicated and there was the status of forces agreement. But the point is it reflected what was correctly widespread sentiment in the United States to end the endless wars. But I think this will indeed mortgage a lot of the trust in the United States, the trust that the United States had built up throughout the decades of the Cold War and beyond, but that began to erode during the Trump administration. And one has to say that, unfortunately, our Afghan policy has enjoyed bipartisan support. It's not like there's one party that's been saying we should be doing something different or staying there longer. I mean, this was a campaign issue that both uh, President Trump and presidential candidate Biden agreed on and both made declarations in March 2020 about this. So I think our allies at all levels will begin to doubt uh, that, you know, President Biden said the U.S. is back. They will begin to doubt that pledge. And what does that mean for the so-called war on terrorism? Terrorism doesn't exist in a vacuum. I mean, it reflects the divisiveness, the polarization, the uncertainties that is going on in both uh, domestic and international affairs. In a vacuum, terrorists can only feel emboldened to fill that vacuum, that they will feel that they can capitalize even more so now than in the past on what is their stock and trade, which is undermining confidence in elected leadership sowing discord amongst policies about key domestic and international or foreign policy issues. So unfortunately, for me, it's kind of like back to the future that we're back in the 1990s, saying the Taliban will be contained and will conform to international norms, that al-Qaeda will be in its box and that the Taliban will control them and that we don't have to worry. I think that there's a profound array of foreign policy challenges and domestic ones that we have to worry about very deeply right now. Any reflections on the apparent profound intelligence failure in Afghanistan? Well, I don't think it was an intelligence failure, at least uh, uh, from, from what I read in the newspapers. And in fact, I think historically there aren't all that many intelligence failures. The failures most often are the failures of policymakers and decision makers to listen to the intelligence community. I mean, it's often said that 9-11 was an intelligence failure. How can it be an intelligence failure when in early August 2001, the CIA sent briefers to President Bush's uh, vacation home in Crawford, Texas, and the title of their presentation was Bin Laden Ready to Strike at the United States. The intelligence community warned about this outcome. In fact, we know that DCIA Burns testified before Congress and said that the intelligence assessment was very bleak about the consequences of a rapid withdrawal. So I don't think it's an intelligence failure. This is a policy failure. You know, I, I'm reminded of, there was a very famous uh, British diplomat, Sir Robert Vansittart, who in the mid-1930s uh, wrote that everyone left or right was desperate for the quiet life. And I feel that's what we've been in the United States in recent years. Um, clearly invading and occupying countries was not a sustainable policy. But by the same token, I think we only have two speeds, full throttle or at a standstill, right? 
the other policy of absolutely no U.S. military forces anywhere, I would argue, is equally unsustainable. And I think the modest investments that we had in U.S. special operations forces and overseas advisors and intelligence assets being deployed in very modest numbers in hotspots throughout the world was extraordinarily successful in keeping the homeland safe and indeed in at least managing the terrorism problem. I mean, firstly, we should never be under the illusion that we could defeat terrorism, but managing it effectively. The past 20 years, we have a pretty good record. I mean, in the sense that the foremost mission was to prevent another catastrophic attack against the United States, and we, and we succeeded. Why that very modest investment has now become a luxury we can't afford, especially when it's been so successful, is something that, that, that at least I can't understand. And I worry that we swing from one extreme to the other in the way we respond to terrorism. And it would be far better to have a more sustained, consistent policy that would really secure the country and maintain international stability against the terrorist threat than the extremes we're seeing played out in front of us in recent years. Do you think that there's a risk that the U.S. becomes so invested in this part of the world, looking at what's happening in Afghanistan, Pakistan, et cetera, and the Middle East more broadly, that we're missing really important developments in other parts of the world when it comes to terrorism? This is exactly right. And this, I think, is the most worrisome development today. Think about it. 20 years ago, we basically faced one adversary and their supporters, Al-Qaeda and the Taliban, in one place, Afghanistan. Despite all our efforts, we failed to completely defeat them. I mean, I would argue that the pivot from South Asia to Iraq, and I was in both places in the 2000s, diverted tremendous resources and precisely led to the scenes we've been watching on the news this past weekend. And it was a direct line. When we had a chance to destroy Al-Qaeda, particularly at the White Mountains of Tora Bora in December 2001, when we had the chance to completely weaken the Taliban and to strengthen an Afghan government, we squandered the opportunity because we just diverted wholesale assets to Iraq. I was in Afghanistan. I remember talking to a civil affairs officer at headquarters at Bagram Air Base in 2008. And he was describing how he had about a staff at headquarters of about half a dozen officers compared to 10 times that number in Iraq. And he said, even in 2008, he said, we're like the Pacific Theater in World War II, waiting for the defeat of Nazi Germany and then being promised we'd have the resources. The resources were never there. When President Obama devoted them during the surge in Afghanistan, there was a timestamp on it. So the Taliban and Al-Qaeda knew they just had to lay low and the U.S. would eventually be gone. So this is the enormous problem. We missed that opportunity. Back then, again, there was one main adversary with its satraps, the, uh, the Taliban, in one place. Now we're faced with multiple franchises of Al-Qaeda and ISIS in Africa, the Middle East, the Balkans, the Caucasus, South Asia, Southeast Asia. We're confronted by problems from peer competitors like China and Russia. We're once again grappling with the threats from rogue states like Iran. So we have a waterfront of national security challenges in front of us that is very daunting after 20 years of indeed having been exhausted by this prolonged war on terrorism. I think one of the keys is rather than every president since 2001 has precipitously declared victory in the war on terrorism. It's never happened. Rather than continuing to declare these hollow victories, what we have to have is a much more consistent and sustained policy. 
And I think we had that at the end of the 2000s when we provided assistance to our allies, to host nation, militaries, police, intelligence and government in strengthening their own resilience against terrorist threats. But their confidence in our commitment to doing that will continue to erode, especially as we withdraw forces from other theaters and other countries. Bruce Hoffman, he has been studying terrorism, radicalization and insurgency for decades and is currently the director of the Center for Jewish Studies at Georgetown University's Wall School of Foreign Service. You know, Gene, the thing that really struck me about that fascinating interview with Bruce Hoffman, who's really a national asset on the question of terrorism, is that he used the word catastrophic to describe what's going on in Afghanistan. And of course, that's being used by everybody right now. But he also said, as some people are now saying, that it will animate more terrorism around the world. And not a lot of discussion has been devoted to that particular angle. It's focused mostly on the Middle East, but he mentioned Africa and other places. It's a worldwide problem, that's for sure. But here they have a safe haven now in Afghanistan. Not only do they have the numbers and the power, they also have this incredible equipment that the U.S. has left behind, state-of-the-art material that is now in the hands of the people who likely are going to want to do us harm and do others harm as well. Yeah, I've been talking to other people also who are saying that uh, the Taliban capital will now be a magnet for terrorists around the world. It's already animating their communications. They're joyous in the streets of Beirut and elsewhere. And other people have said that they expect that the Taliban will be a rallying force to rejuvenate terrorist groups in Africa and, and, and elsewhere. And they were already concerned about the upcoming 20th anniversary of 9-11. Now put this on top of it, this has got to amplify the worry about what's going to happen in the coming weeks and months. Coming up, Jeff will have an interview that provides some of the backstory to our involvement in Afghanistan, including early clues that our efforts at nation building were not going to go well. Harden is a longtime British journalist who specialized in national security and military reporting and worked as a foreign correspondent for decades, traveling to 33 countries while based in London, Belfast, Jerusalem, Baghdad, and here in Washington, D.C., for the Daily Telegraph and the Sunday Times of London. He's also been reporting in and out of Afghanistan since 2006. His new book is First Casualty the untold story of the CIA mission to avenge 911. That's pretty ironic, isn't it, right now? Anyway, it's based on 327 hours of interviews he did with all six surviving members of that first CIA team, Team Alpha, as well as the parents and widow of Mike Spann, the first CIA casualty in Afghanistan. Toby Harden, welcome to Spy Talk. Your book comes out as sort of a revelatory account of what happened on November 25th, 2001, as CIA officers battled militants who they had captured outside of uh, Kabul. But now with the events of the past week, 
it seems like almost a eulogy for them. The key character in your book is Johnny Mike Spann, a CIA officer who was the first CIA officer to die in Afghanistan. Tell us a little bit about him. Certainly, Johnny Michael Spann grew up in Winfield, Alabama, a small town. He joined the U.S. Marines as an Anglico gunfire support officer, artillery officer, and eventually left the Marines and joined the CIA in June 1999 as a paramilitary officer and took training at the farm. That's the CIA training facility in Virginia. That's right. And he there, he was divorced with two young children and met his future wife, Shannon Spann, as she later became, at the farm. And they married in June 2001. And at the same time, they had a son, they had a, their son together was born, uh, Jake Spann. So a very sort of tumultuous and eventful personal and professional life for Mike Spann, who was then, you know, inside CIA headquarters on 9-11 when the, when the planes hit the um, World Trade Center. And he was one of the, a, a member of one of the first teams to go into Afghanistan and push out Al-Qaeda. Is that correct? That's right. He was a member of Team Alpha, which the first team in on September the 28th also was Jawbreaker, which went into the Panjshir Valley, which was controlled by the successors to Ahmed Shah Massoud, who'd been assassinated by the Taliban, Al-Qaeda, on September the 9th, just before 9-11. So Jawbreaker went into friendly territory, if you like, just north of Kabul. Team Alpha, which landed in a Black Hawk, two Black Hawk helicopters, south of Masary Sharif on October the 17th, 2001, they were really the first Americans behind the men, enemy lines, uh, joining and, with and um, they were, Washington. So one of the revelations that you're right is that the CIA officers uh, rounded up some 400 to 600 prisoners and that there was a prisoner uprising. But you write that that wasn't just a spontaneous uprising. It was a plot by Al Qaeda to reverse the gains or reverse the losses that they had suffered after the U.S. came in after 9-1-1. That's right. I mean, the prisoners, sort of Afghan way, prisoners were not properly searched, and they secreted weapons, even rifles, hand grenades, sort of under their robes. They were, uh, there was a suicide attack uh, inside the fort on the night of November the 24th, and the prisoners were pushed down into the basement. And uh, the next morning, David Tyson who was a case officer based in Tashkent at the time. And Mike Spann went into the fort to begin questioning the prisoners to try and sort out, you know, who were just foot soldiers and, and who might have been leadership. You say that this plot was led by Mullah Muhammad Fazi, who was eventually sent to Guantanamo, and then he was released in exchange for uh, Bowie Bergdahl. Where is he now? Do you know if he's part of the Taliban Victory Party in Kabul? I don't know whether he's in Kabul, but Mullah Fazl, who's, you know, a sort of a notorious character, both before 9-11 and since, has been a senior Taliban negotiator in Doha. So we can, I think, very much expect him to be part of the new Taliban government. Another startling thing that you bring out in your book 
is that the U.S. military was ordered not to protect, not to help protect the CIA officers. Can you elaborate on that? Sure. So just after Team Alpha came in, you had an, an ODA, one of the 12-man um, Green Beret units, ODA 595. They came in to, you know, to, to join uh, the Afghans and Team Alpha. But once Masri Sharif had fallen on November the 9th and uh, the Americans got into Mazar, the roles of the agency and of the U.S. military sort of began to diverge. The CIA was concentrating on Al-Qaeda. The U.S. Army was moving towards stability operations and was focusing on the sort of remnants of, of the Taliban. And after this suicide attack on November the 24th, when some of uh, Abdul Rashid Dostum, the Uzbek warlord that they were with, some of his senior, a couple of his senior guys were killed. There was a message sent from Task Force Dagger at K2 in Uzbekistan to say, no U.S. military into Kalajangi the next morning. And so David Tyson and, and Mike Spann went in there alone. Now, they were content that they were with their Afghan allies and, uh, you know, Dostum had a, had a guard force in there, but, you know, that's war is chaotic. That's the local warlord, Dostum. Yeah, that's right, yeah. Um, Who has but, now know, fled Afghanistan, we hear. He's... He's in Uzbekistan. He was in Mazari Sharif when it fell on Saturday and fled across the bridge into Uzbekistan. So like Mullah Fazl, he's he's still around as well. But and anyway, you know, back at the camp. Yeah, it was a chaotic situation. It was fraught with risk as every everything that Team Alpha had done since they landed uh, had been. And, you know, they discussed discussed it with Hank Crumpton back at CIA headquarters. He was leading up the Counterterrorism Center Special Operations Group, which was under Kofa Black's Counterterrorism Center. CIA. Yeah, CIA was essentially, Hank Crompton was essentially running the war from, from Langley. So the CIA officers on the ground, including Mike Spann, spoke to Hank Crompton. They agreed that they should go in. And turned out that Dostum's sort of B or C team people really were in the, in the fort that day. And maybe, you know, Echoes of of you know what happened this weekend. The Afghan Garfuls didn't do their job. You know when they didn't live uh, up to their expectations. No, on paper they looked like an effective guard force, but when things started going south, they, they just some of them were killed, but most of them ran. And you say that to the CIA guys weren't informed that the U.S. military wasn't going to back them up. No, there was um, discussion that morning of of who should go. Mike Spann and David Tyson were content to be with just the Afghan Guard Force. They weren't asking for Green Berets to be with them. It wasn't a perfect situation. I think if ODA 595, who were actually in Kunduz, so that they were the guys that had been with Team Alpha all the way through. If they'd been in, in Masri Sharif that day, they may well have said, well, screw, screw the order, we're going with you. But um, it turned out they just went in alone that day. Do you know whether the Green Berets were told not to help CIA guys who were about to be overwhelmed? There was an order from Task Force Dagger that morning before the uprising, before Tyson and Spam went to the fort. The Green Berets were told not to go in. Once the uprising started, the Green Berets formed a rescue force and they very much went in to uh, help their agency colleagues. But then it was too late. Too late for Mike Spam, certainly. 
another name that pops up in your book that I hadn't even thought about for years, John Walker Lind, the so-called American Taliban who was captured there. He was eventually tried and convicted in an American court and sentenced to jail, but he got out in 2019. Do we have any idea where he is now? Told that he's in the Northern Virginia area. He had very stringent conditions placed on him when he was released. Although at the time in 2002, you know, when he he took a plea deal for for 20 years, he was sort of portrayed successfully, you know, and maybe predictably by his lawyers as sort of a mixed up kid who'd gone to explore Islam and, you know, wasn't anti-American and didn't you know, have anything to do with 9-11 or even know about it. The problem with that sort of narrative is that, you know, in the intervening years, John Walker Lynn became even more sort of convinced adherent of, you know, extreme Islam and and ended up praising ISIS and supporting ISIS, at least verbally, in prison letters, you know, Mm -hmm. at a time when they were sort of beheading American journalists in Syria and Iraq. So, so maybe he's celebrating the Taliban victory today in Northern Virginia. You know, one thing about Lynn, as far as we can tell, is that he's been very consistent throughout. And I would imagine he's highly delighted with what's happened. Yeah. You advance another quite provocative argument that the U.S. might have earned a victory and a future solid settlement in Afghanistan. If it had allowed the CIA and its Green Beret partners to eliminate Al-Qaeda, stop there and help form a coalition government that included some elements of the Taliban. Could you explain how that would have gone down? Yes. That's where I feel that those early weeks of Pan-Afghanistan are more than just a sort of a eulogy for Mike Spann and the celebration of the success that Team Alpha and the other teams from the CIA achieved. Because it seems to me that the, the seeds of, of what ended up you know, being the catastrophe of this weekend, you could see them being sown in these very early weeks. In particular, in early December 2001, we had the Bonn Conference, which was, that's when the US role, as it saw it, switched from being getting to Al-Qaeda and preventing further U.S. attacks and bringing to justice the people who had plotted 9-11 and denying them sanctuary and all that. That was a conference in Bonn, Germany, just to clarify for listeners, at which numerous partners of the United States uh, formulated the, uh, the plan going forward in Afghanistan, essentially nominated a president of Afghanistan. That's right. And it's then you started to see mission creep. Really, because of the relative success, you know, you could argue superficial or it was temporary of of the Taliban being toppled so quickly. I think that fed into this uh, American hubris where we started to believe that we could refashion a country which, you know, even some Afghans would argue that it's not, not really a country, a coherent country at all, and sort of supplant the tribal system with a centralized, you know, Western-style democracy. And that led to staging really an invasion after the fact. The invasion of Afghanistan by the U.S. really started in 2002. That's when conventional forces poured in. And of course, 
you know, it also led the Bush administration to believe that changing regimes was easy and we could go on and, um, you know, and uh, remove Saddam Hussein in Iraq. So yeah, rather and everything sticking, went sideways then. Right. So rather than sticking with the sort of limited, you know, hundreds of Americans on the ground of regional specialists, linguists, elite special forces, advising the Afghans how to fight, obviously with US air power sort of tipping the balance militarily, but really leaving it to the Afghans to do most of the fighting and the Afghans to be running their country as imperfect as, the, as that all was always going to be. We started to try and do that American thing of teaching Big them units. to be like us, you know, and, yeah. um, and grafting some sort of Western democratic forms they had no experience with onto their system, their tribal system. Let me ask you this. Were the Afghans fighting well up to that point? You can see the seeds of some of the things that were happening that subsequently happened. Some of the Afghans did. So certainly the Uzbeks, uh, Abdul Rashid Dostum, fought sort of tenaciously and ferociously. Some of the Tajiks in the Panjshir Valley, Fahim Khan, who's since died, they were sort of frozen in place. Uh, asking for more American money, more American firepower before they would fight themselves. Mm-hmm, um, mm-hmm. There were complex kind of tribal relationships, deals going on with the Taliban. So it was very sort of complicated. So the argument that the CIA could have kind of stitched, CIA and special forces could have stitched together some sort of at least temporary solution is is it's kind of wobbly because, as you say, the seeds of the future in Afghanistan were already blossoming. You might say, yes. I mean, I think it was. You know, it's it's Afghanistan. It's not you know the fifty first state of, of of the United States. Mm. And I think I think if we tragically, you can't run the experiment the other way. You can't just say, oh, we didn't. We, you know, we allowed a small element of the Taliban to be brought into the into the Afghan government in 2001, and it all would have turned out perfectly. And, you know, hindsight is this wonderful thing. The principles of a limited U.S. involvement focused, you know, of course, we didn't capture or kill bin Laden as well. That's the other thing that, you know, happened in, 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 in 2001. But if we stuck to those limited early war, war aims, instead of allowing it to to sort of spread out into, you know, the Taliban are terrorists and conflating them with Al-Qaeda. Uh, yeah, I, I you, think you it could po- have been different, but, you know, as I say, you, hindsight's a wonderful thing. You point out that that was a cardinal error, uh, conflating Al-Qaeda with the Taliban, treating all the Taliban as terrorists. Do you know whether CIA officials or other officials argued strongly to stop at that point in 2002 and help fashion some sort of coalition government and to get out, not to bring, to argue, not to bring in major U.S. units? Well, certainly there were elements of the elements of the CIA. Bob Grenier, who was the Islamabad station chief, who, who actually met with the Taliban after 9-11 and tried to kind of sort of split the Taliban, get, get elements of the Taliban to break away from al-Qaeda and, and renounce them. You know, there were many, many different voices. But I know that Hank Crompton, who, who I interviewed, for instance, did not believe that this should be a nation building exercise involving, you know, tens of thousands of American conventional troops, which is exactly what happened. I mean, essentially, Rumsfeld and the Pentagon, who didn't have a plan uh, on 9-11. So it was it, the Bush administration turned to Cope Black and George Tenet and the CIA for the war plan. 
But the Pentagon were in the driving seat from December 2001. And uh, that's when everything changed. So they wanted to get into the game because they were caught flat-footed after the 911 attacks. They didn't have a plan to route al-Qaeda from Afghanistan or much less to deal with the Taliban. So the CIA spearheaded the effort in uh, October 2001. Uh, So Rumsfeld just wanted to get into the game. And that was his only way in. Yeah, absolutely. And made sure he was uh, not late, but early for Iraq for for the next conflict. You know, these arguments about letting the CIA run the war, so to speak, are so reminiscent of Vietnam. All the obituaries over the the tragedy of Vietnam included this argument that if the CIA had been left alone to work with local tribesmen and and so on, uh, and U.S. big U.S. military units been left out to prospect for propping up a U.S. backed regime in Saigon could have succeeded. And now we're hearing those same arguments that they're interesting, but in any event, it's over. It certainly is. <laughs> so the argument is going to be closed forever. The book is called First Casualty, The Untold Story of the CIA Mission to Avenge 911, kind of an ironic title today. It's uh, available on Amazon or better yet, get it at one of your fine independent local bookstores like the one we have here in Washington, D.C., Politics and Prose. Toby Harden, it's been a pleasure to have you here, no matter how sad the unfolding story of Afghanistan. Thank you very much. Thank you, Jeff. And that's Toby Harden, who's putting the first chapter on our Afghanistan experience with his new book on the CIA team that went into Afghanistan in October 2001. A lot of foreshadowing there, Jeff, of what happened later. But you know what I keep going back to this week as I watch these images of what's happening in Afghanistan? The interview you did several weeks ago with a man who'd been an interpreter for U.S. forces who was trying to get a visa to get out. Do you have any idea what's happened to him, by the way? That's been chaotic. Uh, I don't know. Uh, In the chaos of the current situation, I haven't been able to check to see if he uh, has gotten out. But thousands more are stranded behind. And I reported over the weekend that the uh, email system for accepting special visa requests crashed due to the overwhelming number of people desperate to get their papers in. I don't know for how many hours, but at least for almost all of Sunday, it crashed. And I talked to an Air Force sergeant for that story who said uh, this is a death or murder by incompetence. You're going to hear a lot more incriminations coming up about the people we left behind. And hopefully, unlike Vietnam, the CIA didn't leave files behind that could identify the intelligence assets we had in Afghanistan. What strikes me is the utter failure to plan for something that was foreseeable. And it is not the first time. You know, I was a Homeland Security correspondent for CNN, and I watched this unfold with Katrina. They knew that one of the top catastrophes that could hit the United States was a major hurricane coming in to the Gulf and hitting New Orleans. They saw it coming just the same way 
We knew we were pulling out of Afghanistan and we saw cities falling elsewhere in the country. And yet there was a failure to get ahead of the curve, to deploy what was needed to react quickly and appropriately to a changing situation. I know part of this is government. It's big. It's bureaucratic. There's a lot of red tape. Those things are in place to preserve processes and to make sure that things go right. But there has to be a way to be more nimble, to be more responsive, and to be more creative. Getting back to your visa issue, I just saw a story recently that now they put out a call to people at DHS saying, hey, will you come on over and help us process these visas? Why wasn't that done weeks, if not months ago? I don't understand. You know, personally, I'm, I'm just totally fed up with wake up calls. And I don't know what the wake up call of Kabul applies to now. I mean, we are gone from Afghanistan. We are gone from Libya. Someone I talked to today, Ali Soufan, an expert on terrorism, said that the militants and terrorists see their place in history like the barbarians that attacked the Roman Empire, eroded the Roman Empire from within, and they're not going to give up until the West just crumbles. So that's pretty uh, upsetting. You know, in terms of planning, the CIA, there's a lot of banding about about whether this was an intelligence failure. I just don't think that that really holds up. I, I think back to August 2001, when the CIA was so alarmed that it rushed down to George W. Bush's ranch in Texas with a report that was headlined, Osama bin Laden determined to strike in the U.S. Homeland Security had been urged upon the Bush administration from its first days. And just ironically, September 11th was the scheduled date for the first meeting of the Homeland Security Council in the White House. They just blew that off for months. So here we are again, surprised again and again. I don't know what the cure is for this chronic illness, this lack of preparation. And we're now looking at some big looming events in Asia, particularly Taiwan. Taiwan has got to be quaking in its boots today, seeing what happened in Afghanistan and wondering if we're going to be there to protect them. And of course, the question is whether we can protect them. That's that's what we call an away game. Anyway, we'll be looking at that and other questions regard to intelligence around the world and particularly in Afghanistan. Hope you'll come back to uh, listen to us here on the Spy Talk podcast. And also remember, you can find Spy Talk on Substack. A lot of great material there. I'm Jeff Stein. I'm Jean Mazur. Thanks for joining us. For more original reporting and insights like this, subscribe to spytalk.co on Substack and follow us on Twitter at talk underscore spy. If you enjoyed our podcast, subscribe and leave a review on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. 